Hello, and welcome to D&D Book Club. My name is Megan, and this is part two of my two-part discussion with Sharday and Lissa of the Slovenly Trolls podcast, discussing the women of Dragonlance. In part one, we discussed how the social conventions of the time in which early Dragonlance novels were written, as well as the tropes of the fantasy genre, infused both the story and the characters, and unfortunately led certain relationships, even relationships involving powerful female characters, to feel very male-centric. In this episode, we will examine three female characters more closely. Dragon High Lord Kidiara Uthmatar, revered daughter Chrysania of Tyrannius, and Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness herself. These three women are interesting case studies because they are, in their own right, all very strong-willed and powerful characters. Kidiara is a peerless warrior in general, Lady Chrysania is one of the most powerful clerics on Ancelon, and the Queen of Darkness is, well, she's the Queen of Darkness, the original Mother of Dragons. Specifically, we will be discussing how each woman functions in her own context, and how reading these novels in 2021 provides readers and fans a perspective which allows us to recontextualize and reinterpret these classic characters for the modern era. Before I proceed, I want to address some of the criticism I received for this episode. I received a very strong backlash for this episode, as well as a lot of positive feedback. I would like to thank those who defended the slovenly trolls and me from unfair attacks. I would also like to thank those who listened to the episode and provided thoughtful, constructive criticism, even if you fundamentally disagreed with me. In one particular instance, I was called out for referring to Lorana as a static character, and I acknowledge that as a valid criticism. Lorana is a very dynamic character, and static was a poor choice of words. One question I received from other detractors was, why do this at all? Meaning, why analyze a 40-year-old novel with current modes of thought, which did not exist when the novels were first written, or at least were not accessible to the general public? I would respond that, for me, critiquing a novel is its own reward. There doesn't need to be some higher objective than that. I find it intellectually stimulating and challenging to deconstruct the past, and I find that, more often than not, it actually leads to a greater appreciation of the topic I'm analyzing. That's absolutely true in the case of Dragonlance novels. It's the entire reason I created this podcast. If there's a greater purpose, I would argue that analyzing history and analyzing literature allows us to find objective truth in a subjective world. But that truth is not a fixed answer, like the answer to a mathematical equation. The truth is the ongoing process of examination and interpretation. However, that being said, there is equal value in reading and enjoying these novels as nothing more and nothing less than fun, exciting, dramatic adventure stories, and I would never discourage anyone from doing so. Lastly, the final criticism I would like to respond to, a criticism I do not find valid, is the implication that I am trying to quote-unquote destroy Dragonlance. This is the typical shallow reactionary response to any attempt to penetrate the patina of nostalgia around a mythic past. Some people see any challenge as a threat. I see a challenge as an opportunity. I love Dragonlance. That's the reason I started my podcast with the core Dragonlance novels. I would never, ever want to cancel Dragonlance or Margaret Weiss or Tracy Hickman. I might as well try to cancel my own heart. Okay, with that out of the way, let me just remind you that if you want to contact me, you can email me at dndbookclub at gmail.com. That's D-A-N-D-D bookclub. You can also find me on Instagram at dndbookclub. 
If you want to hear more of my guests, the Slovenly Trolls, you can find their podcast anywhere podcasts are found, and you can also find them on Instagram and Twitter at Slovenly Trolls. If you'd like to support this show, please go to patreon.com slash dndbookclub and become a patron for only $5 a month. There will be a link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into part two of my discussion with the Slovenly Trolls on the women of Dragonlance. So the first character I really want to focus on in a bit more detail is the character that's called Kiriara Uthmitar. She's the daughter of a woman with mental illness and of a disgraced knight. She grows up kind of like as a tomboy. She wears boy clothes. She wears her hair short and she prefers, she doesn't like to do quote unquote girly things she likes to do. She likes to play soldiers. She likes to sword fight even when she's really little. Um, she essentially raises her two younger half brothers, Raislin and Karaman, because their because their mother is mentally ill and their father is always working. She essentially is a mother for her two little brothers. Um, but she leaves home at a young age to become a mercenary. During this time period, she meets Tannis Half Elven, and the two of them start a kind of torrid love affair. Very, very um, passionate, very fiery. Um, romance and the two of them separate their whole band of friends decides to separate Tannis goes off one way Kitiara goes another way and while Kitiara is off pursuing her her agenda she she ends up sleeping with a knight named Sturm uh, she seduces him essentially as a punishment um, she doesn't like how Sturm is all acting all lawful good all the time he's all stuck up, thinks he's better than everybody. So she decides that she's going to seduce him in order to make him break his vows. So that's what she does. And afterwards, he says that he wants to do the honorable thing and marry her. And she basically laughs at him and then ditches him. Ultimately, she gives birth to his baby, which she then also abandons. Um, later, she becomes a general in the dragon armies. She becomes, She rises to essentially become the Queen of Darkness's favored general, and so she's very much a power player in the first six novels of the series. She is described as being what we would call now sexually liberated. She has her lovers on the side. She just wants dudes to hook up with. She doesn't want to be involved in a romantic relationship. She's too. She's focused on her career, but she still wants to have sex. So she finds these like boy toys promotes them to officers, but essentially they're only officers so that she can keep them, so that she has an excuse to have them near her. She meets up with Tannis Half-Elven again. They start their relationship up all over again. But of course, he's very conflicted because he's in love with Lorana, but he's also in love with Kitiara, and he's half-human, and Kitiara's human, and he's half-elf, and Lorana's an elf. And it's all very much about, as we said, it's all very much about Tannis. 
Kitty Ara is interesting because she's described in all these masculine ways, but she's also very described in a very sexual way, too. There's numerous scenes where she's naked and she's described as lithe and graceful and she's kind of walking around naked around. Um, she walks naked around people because she's so immodest about her body. But ultimately, at the end of the first trilogy, she's defeated because she cannot get past her own feelings for Tannis. She doesn't understand that Tannis doesn't really love her. He actually loves Lorana, and he ends up betraying Kitiara, and that is how Kitiara gets defeated at the end of the first trilogy. So yeah, that's Kitiara. So tell me, what do you guys think? Well, I did a bit of background research on her, so I already knew most of that, so I'm curious to see what Alyssa's opinions are on it after hearing about her. I don't know. I'm 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 a bit conflicted. Like she seems like a kind of badass girl who just can't get over a boy. I don't know if that's like that's me nitpicking and being like, oh, there's another trope because you know, of course, the badass girl would fall in love with a guy and not be able to get over it. I don't know. I'm 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 conflicted about that. That's because she's an evil character, technically, right, Kitiara? She's not. She's not a good good guy. She's a bad guy. She's a villain. Well, I think right? Lissa, Lissa kind of hit the nail on the head when she said that she's conflicted. I think that you're supposed to be conflicted about Kitiara. Um, I think that she's supposed to be much more of an anti-hero than a villain. Uh, okay, gotcha. She has an antagonistic relationship with the characters in the sense that they are fighting against the dragon armies and she is fighting for the dragon armies. Mm. But she's still in love with Tannis. She's the older sister of two of the characters that are fighting against her. I think I think it's very much intended that she should be ambiguous and that you as the reader are not quite sure how you're supposed to feel about her. Even the idea that she can't get over Tannis is a little unclear. It's not it's it's not entirely apparent whether Kitiara is doing what she does because she actually is in love with Tannis or if she believes so strongly in her ability to manipulate men that she can't imagine that Tannis would ever betray her. It seems like a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. It sounds like she is a very deep and layered character, which is good because usually, unfortunately, you don't see that kind of depth and conflict with women. You see a lot of this with men and and I think like society's um, obsession with villains and wanting to humanize villains. And sometimes people aren't villains. They're just morally gray and you're meant to not understand what their true motivations are. And in that respect, she seems like a really good case for like the literary study where it's just like there maybe isn't a right or wrong answer. She just is, which I think that's usually a standing for a pretty good character where I'm wary is like, I don't, necessarily agree with using while love is an emotion that is very human emotion the fact that like her main conflict with the group isn't necessarily that she's fighting against her family but she's fighting against a dude that she slept with and that's more conflicting to her than betraying her family which is kind of i don't does that speak more to her i'm not super familiar i haven't read all the books so is does it make sense for her to care more about Tannis's opinion than care about like her siblings opinions and like what she may or may not be doing to her siblings. There's definitely a certain detachment between her and her siblings. 
She's okay. It's treated as if her primary, even though they are her brothers, her primary relationship is with Tannis. He raised okay. them up, right? She, 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 she was their mother. Essentially, essentially, yes. Although she's also treated as a very unmotherly mother. Hmm. Right. She is. She wants to keep them alive and to make them strong, but she's not at all nurturing or caring. So the only pe- person that it seems that she potentially can nurture and care for is Tannis, but right. she can't have him. So that'll never, that part of her will never be fulfilled. I think that Kitiara sees Tannis as a challenge, ultimately. The thing that she really wants is to keep Tannis under her thumb. And she's willing to do extreme things to make that happen. At one point in the third novel, she kidnaps the, her. She kidnaps the rival general, Lorana. Lorana is her, the is her military rival, and she's also her romantic rival. And she sets a trap for Lorana, and she catches her. And her goal is to tell Tannis that if he swears allegiance to the Queen of Darkness and joins her army, then Kitiara will allow Lorana to live. And ultimately, that's what Kitiara wants. She wants Tannis all to herself. She wants him to join <laughs> the Dragon Army to be her her top lieutenant, and for Tannis to swear off Lorana forever. In terms of her relationship goals, that's what she wants. Mm. Hmm. Okay. She just, it's its interesting too, because I'm tr- I'm also trying to think of this in like a gender swapped way. Like I'm trying to think, what would I think of this character if she was a man? Kitiara was a man and Lorana was a man and Tanis was a woman. It would be a much more romantic story, weirdly, I think, because the connotation of one woman and two men instead of two women and one man. But in this instance, it seems way more plot-driven than it does, like, by characters and romance and stuff. So, is Kitiara, do we think that she's meant to be a more masculine figure as compared to other women in the series? Because it seems like she is in charge of her sexuality, right? And As opposed to the other women that you've mentioned. I would say she's very much intended to be more masculine. She's described more physically masculine in the way she dresses and the way that she you know, does her hair. And mm-hmm. she's a very martial character. She believes in fighting, you know, literally fighting for what she wants. And she sees strength, physical strength and strength of will as kind of the, the way to achieve her goals. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the other female characters, their strength comes from, their willingness to sacrifice their love for their friends and their family. And I guess, I guess that's the the good character, evil character dichotomy. So based on that, essentially what, what you could read from this is Kitiara's downfall is her masculinity that she's not able to get the man because she is, I don't want to say not feminine, but, like, she's not in tune with her feminine side, I guess, with her I suppose. feminine ways. Is is that one way to look at it? Like, I'm that's, that's how I'm, like... Yeah, I think you could say that. You could say that in a way. Um, Tannis has the choice between 
sticking with Kitiara and ruling the entire world by her side. And all he has to do is give up his relationship with the good girl, Lorana. And he's not willing to do that. He ends up casting aside everything that Kitiara is offering him so that he can save Lorana. And the two of them go off and get married. Mm -hmm. So is he a masculine character? Yeah. Like a traditionally masculine character then? I would say so. He's not necessarily the alpha male, but he definitely has... Ma- he's definitely portrayed as masculine. So in, in embracing Lorana as his ultimate choice is completing him. Whereas if he were to have chosen Kitiara, it wouldn't have grown his character anymore, he, which kind of, again, lends it to like using the women as plot devices. Like he, yeah, he might've had like a change of like alignment, maybe like he would have been more evil, but he, in order to maintain his good boy character and his traditional fantasy hero, it obviously you choose Lorana because she is the the light, not the dark, and she is embracing his elven part and not his human part, which is elves are kind of more traditionally like lithe and beautiful and good. Right, exactly. If Tannis had gone with Kitiara, he would have kept his promises to her but he would have been forever divided because Mm -hmm. he chooses Lorana and ends up with her there's a sense that Tannis is now a whole being he's no longer a half elf he is a whole Tannis he is a whole elf yeah in a sense But also not to like make this whole like conversation about Tannis because obviously it's not about him. It's about Kitiara, our queen. So because you when you when you were describing her, you also said that she is not a good motherly figure, right? She gave birth. She abandoned the child. She's like a mother to her siblings. Right. Right. Are all of these good woman characters that we've been talking about? Are they good mothers? Like, do they go off, have kids and they're good mothers? Absolutely. Yeah, that's fun. So if you're a bad mom or if you don't want to be a mother, then you're a quote unquote bad character. But if you want to be a mom and you go off and have kids, then you're a good character. Right, precisely. So one thing I want to say, though, before we finish off with Kitiara is that despite all this treating Kitiara like a plot device, she actually holds up more than any of the other characters, even the male characters. When you're reading these books in 2021, Kitiara feels like a modern character. The others don't. And I think that it's a testament. It's a testament to the fact that Kitiara is so much more morally ambiguous mm-hmm. that she doesn't. We can say that morality and society has evolved over the last 40 years. And because Kitiara is so ambiguous about her being good and evil, that she no longer, she doesn't feel dated in the way that some of the other characters do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy looted, uh, rooting for Kitiara, actually. Like, the more you talk about her, the more I'm like, yeah, she's cool. Like, I, I, I like this chick. She is very cool. I just, I love morally gray characters in general. They're like my bread and butter. Same. And I, 
I just love not knowing what somebody's going to do because I think in hindsight, that's just, you know, a metaphor for the human condition. I think not everyone is absolutely good or absolutely bad. And when you see that in fiction and like there is one moment in your life that you could have become a terrible person or there is people make mistakes. Exactly. And characters like that show that. And I think you hit the nail on the head where when you said morality has changed or at least society's conception of morality, because look at look at everybody's obsession with Loki from like the Marvel universe. Like that's one of the most morally gray characters Mm. of that entire cinematic universe and everybody loves him they either want to be him they want to bang him or they just want to see what he's gonna do next because he's so gray and you want to know if he's gonna be good or evil because like even villains in real life are morally gray i think that loki loki and in a sense kitiara and even somebody like darth vader Oh what, yeah. What sure. happens is they are they start as villains, but they're such interesting characters that people mm-hmm. relate to them and then they can't they can't stay that kind of a villain forever. That's what I just love about long form storytelling in general is like when you watch TV series or movie franchises or read really long like books series every character if it's done well obviously not every book series or movie franchise does this but if they're done well all the characters are just so deep and just complicated and that is my jam i love that especially in genre like stuff like science fiction and fantasy because for the longest time people didn't realize and still don't realize at least in the academic community which is where a lot of my background is from that series that have dragons and magic and spaceships can have probably some of the most interesting characters in media in general because they have like this long form going towards them and thank god we're moving away from the big bad evil guy trope where it's just like oh he's just bad or she's just bad just because they're bad no they're complicated they're gray they're human and we love that (laughs) because it just it just, it's just juicy. It's just like real life. And I, I don't know. I had like, I mean, we didn't really talk about Lorana a whole lot, but I found like this very interesting tidbit about Lorana that I thought was super interesting. Yeah, But we didn't really it. talk about her a lot. Let's talk about it. I can so two things. One, I found that the, the inspiration for Lorana as a character was Tracy Hickman's wife, Laura. That and I thought... Laura. Laura Hickman, for what it's worth, we'll give her a shout out. Laura Hickman and Tracy Hickman created Ravenloft together. Oh, well, shit. That's cool. Sorry, let me back up for a second. I believe that Laura Hickman and Tracy Hickman created the Dragonlance setting together, although it was Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss that wrote the novels. Mm-hmm. And Laura that's Hickman pretty cool. And Laura Hickman and Tracy Hickman definitely created Ravenloft together. They wrote the original Ravenloft adventures together, which became the setting, which became the modern fifth edition setting. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of a background figure within Dungeons and Dragons, but she's very heavily influential. Mm. I love that. Okay, we stand. I love it. I just, when I first read that, I, I got a bit hesitant reading it because... As somebody who has studied writing and craft, 
it's really bad practice to base characters off of loved ones because you don't want anyone to hurt them. (laughs) Which is like, okay, that sounded really bad. So yeah, you make your characters suffer usually in books, right? And you you put Mm. them through shit and you do a lot of different things to them and you mold them in certain ways. But if they remind you too much of people in real life, you're not going to do that. So I thought it was interesting that one of the characters whose story was kind of written off after a while was someone that was based on a real life person. And it made me wonder if at least on Tracy Hickman's side, if he was just worried about hurting this person that was based on his wife and he just thought that it would like not, it kind of adds a different dimension to maybe like part of the process of writing Lorana's arc. If like they, he genuinely just didn't want anything bad to happen to her after like she went through a whole ordeal and he's just like, now let's just take her out. Obviously I can't say that he did or not, but I just thought from a Mm. craft perspective, it was an interesting tidbit. (laughs) I guess. Also, I, I feel like if you create somebody based off of somebody else, you're you're gonna gloss over a little bit of the um, maybe their bad parts mm. because their flaws. If even like, especially if you're gonna tell them they were based off of somebody, like, and then it's in a whole book and and they read it, like, yeah. reading about I, your bad sides, like, hello. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, it's another I've I can't I can't I can't even count the amount of times that whenever I tell people that I'm working on like novels or I'm working on a project and they're like, Oh my god, you're a writer, can you base a character off me? Can you write me in your book? And I always say no. <laughs> and if I say and I'm like, no, or yeah, I'll just kill you off in two pages. Like, no, that's weird. Why would you say that? <laughs> If somebody wrote me as a character in a novel and killed me off horrifically, nothing would make me happier. <laughs> oh my god, can I do that? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Hell yeah, I'll do that. I'll name a character Megan and I'll kill her in two pages and it'll be gory and awful and it's, wonderful. It's all I've ever wanted out of life. Perfect. Lovely. There's one other thing about Lorana that I found also having to do with Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss. Apparently... Because we talked a little bit about this when we were, you know, brainstorming episode ideas that Lorana's decision to go to Kitiara and be essentially tricked was very against her character because she was this, at this point, a very respected general. And she shouldn't really, in terms of an arc, be that dumb. (laughs) Like, she shouldn't be that dumb to fall for something like that. When it comes to, oh, I have your your hubby, come get him. And she's like, okay. But apparently that decision caused tension between Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Like they actually had an argument about it. And Tracy Hickman wanted Lorana to go fall into the trap. And Margaret Weiss is like, no, why would you? Why would you do that? Doesn't make any sense. But she ultimately bended because, quote, the plot depended on it, which... You know, that's up for debate. I haven't read the books. I don't know if the plot depended on it. But I just thought it was interesting that that kind of turning point that we talked about was actually a point of contention between the authors. And that it was was like, no, she's going to do this. She's going to choose love over duty. And I'm like, well, is that because you base it off of your wife? Or what do you mean? (laughs) It's not even so much that it's not so much that Lorana is supposed to be dumb because she knows that there's a trap. She knows she's being led into a trap. She just does it anyway, because ultimately Lorana's sin is not that she does something stupid, 
because she knows that it's potentially a trap. The Mm -hmm. sin is that she abandons her army that needs her to go after Mm -hmm. this man that she loves. If she was just an ordinary civilian who walked into a trap because they thought it might help save the person they love, that's a bit more forgivable. But what Lorana is doing is abandoning the armies that need her. She's their, she's their strategic leader, and she's also their figurehead. Mm-hmm. And without her, the morale crumbles, and they don't have her to lead them anymore. Mm-hmm. That's really the ultimate failing. I can imagine that's what Margaret Weiss is most upset about. That Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm reading back over my notes, and I wrote, Weiss didn't think Lorana would abandon her duties to chase after Tannis, but Hickman said she would choose love over duty. Right, and I guess I guess that's ultimately a... I don't know how to reconcile that, really. It's mm-hmm. it's it's really like a question of the age-old question of like when when you have a woman and she has to choose between you know duty and love. You know, she, obviously she's going to go after her heart, you know, and not her brain because she will want to go and save whoever she loves instead of be a cold-hearted bitch. You can also see where Tracy Hickman is coming from, though. It, the plot really did require it. I mean, okay. the the dragon armies are gathering at the Queen of Darkness's temple, and there needs to be some motivation for the heroes to go there and ultimately to defeat her. And the reason that they go there is that they're trying to rescue Lorana. Like, they're not going there to destroy the dragon armies. They're just going to try to save Lorana. And then in the process of saving her, they managed to destroy the whole thing but yeah i mean i kind of see where i see where he's coming from in the sense that the story they were writing it had to happen but they probably could have written it a bit differently maybe had her captured a different way i mean why couldn't she just have been captured in battle instead of yeah i was gonna say like using the word captured even makes more sense like captured during a battle or she was ambushed like why did she need to make this very conscious decision to potentially go walk into into a trap and you know to save potentially tannis over like literally making a conscious decision to you know put her army's well-being to the side i do want to point out that there is a moment later in that same novel where i think lorana i wonder if margaret weiss insisted on this point because it's a certain measure of redemption for lorana where she discovers that tanis has been banging kitiara on the side and lorana and then tanis kills the general of the dragon armies. He jumps to save Lorana and she shoves him off this platform where she's held prisoner. She doesn't let him save her. She pushes him off this platform and then she goes off running and she kind of escapes herself because she refuses mm-hmm. to let Tannis be the one to save her. So I maybe there also- is... Maybe they were trying to balance it out a little bit. I also had that moment in my notes because I also saw that she did that. And I'm like, I think that was Margaret Weiss saying, like, I'm still going to get, like, Lorana to not be this ultimate betrayer of her 
like of her legion basically she's still gonna give lorana a little bit of autonomy and to react like any normal human would when you realize that your boyfriend's a cheating piece of shit (laughs) i think little moments like that help the dragonlance novels to have a bit more staying power because without Mm -hmm. a moment like that all you'd be focusing on is just the fact that she gets caught trying to save her boyfriend and the entire character falls apart, but at the end she gets that little moment where she gets to be tough again. And maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't completely balance the scales, but at least she gets to have that moment. Mm-hmm. And then like 80 sword and sorcery books, you kind of take what you can get. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Speaking of complicated and juicy, I want to move on to our next character. Um, her her name is Lady Chrysania. She's a high-ranking cleric of the Supreme God of Good, whose name is Paladine. She's described as very cold, heartless. Despite the fact that she's devoted to good, she's very cold. She's not empathetic. She's very withdrawn and into herself. And she meets the black robe wizard named Raceland Majir and falls in love with him and her new life quest becomes to win him back to the side of good and Raislin is essentially Raislin is aware that Chrysania is in love with him and he essentially comes up with this plan to use that love to manipulate her into using her divine magic to open the portal that will take him to the abyss where he can defeat the queen of darkness and take her place as a supreme god of evil Um, And long story short, they end up traveling back in time. Once they're back in time, Raceland undergoes this physical transformation where he's no longer this shriveled, dying incel. He is like, now he's virile and he's healthy. And with the return of his virility and his health, he starts to see Chrysania as a as a sexually attractive woman. And he feels tormented by his desire for her he feels like if he gives into his desires then he's going to lose track of what his goal is which is becoming a god and he can't be distracted by his feelings for chrysania and at the same time he wants to discourage chrysania from wanting a sexual relationship with him because if they have sex then she will no longer be quote-unquote pure and if she is no longer pure she will lose her she will lose her strength not in the sense necessarily that she's going to lose her divine power but she's going to lose her sense of who she is um she sees herself as this pure chaste untouchable person and if she gives in to her sexual desires then she's no longer going to be that and his his plan is no longer going to work Ultimately, Raceland is very manipulative towards Chrysania. He kind of strings her along for a couple novels. In the second novel of the series called War of the Twins, we have almost another love triangle where between the two brothers, Caramon and Raceland, and they're both kind of in love with Chrysania. But she's really only into Raceland, and there's a scene where they go off into the woods together and they almost, almost have sex, but then Raceland gets really mad and he throws Chrysania to the ground and he rips her dress off and he's trying to show her what a bad person he really is and how what she wants from him. She doesn't really want what she thinks that she wants from him and 
in the third book of the novel, they finally get to the abyss and Raceland essentially abandons her to die, to die alone in the abyss after he's used her for what he needed her for. And that's it. That's Raceland and Chrysania. Wow, that's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> that's so complicated. I love that. <laughs> so I think the meat, the meat of it that I really want to discuss is this notion of Raceland is this man with a mission and he can't be distracted by this woman and her sexy body. And then on the flip side, we've got Chrysania, who is morally pure, virtuous cleric. And if she gives in to her throbbing biological urges, then she is no longer going to be the... She is no longer going to have her own strength of purpose to do what she to do what Raisin wants her to do. Seeing a theme in that women's purity is what makes them strong. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's that sort that's sort of how it is with Chrysania. Or that's at least that's how Raceland sees Chrysania. We don't really get Chrysania's point of view. It, she just wants to bang Raceland. It doesn't seem like she doesn't seem conflicted about it at all. It's really about Raceland. And there's also not any sense, there's not any sense in the Dragonlance universe that clerics can't be married. Uh, Goldmoon, who we talked about in the beginning of the episode, she's married. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no prohibition ever explicitly described about clerics being married. The gods themselves are married. Paladine has a wife. Again, if we want to take it back to the Mormon angle, Mormon priests are allowed to be married. But there's never any talk of marriage between Raceland and Chrysania. That's one of the interesting things. It's sort of like maybe there's a certain Im- Im- implicitness to that, that Chrysania just seems to want to bang Raceland. Raceland's conflict with regards to Chrysania is does he continue with his ambition to become a god or does he live the easy life of happiness with this woman that loves him. I see it as it's like, so this is kind of a stretch, but if you think about in the Iliad when Achilles has the choice between living forever in glory or living to die as an old man but ultimately be forgotten, that's kind of the choice that Raceland has. It's so odd to me too, because it just sounds like from Raceland's perspective or whoever wrote these books perspective, it just sounds like the whole complex around sex is that you can only have sex correctly if you are married. And if you're married, that makes you weaker. And that means you can't, you know, also have goals outside of marriage because once you're married, that's all that you can focus on. You can't, they can't coexist together is what it sounds like. Like you can't be married and also be like, want to, you know, take over this other God's place on a throne. Like you can't be married and have sex and have all like have somebody who you love and also have ambition because love is all consuming. When in reality, you can, you can have both, but it sounds like just like, again, another running theme is like, you can't be married and, be have have consistent like have a good sex life and prevail in your goals if you have if you're a little bit of a slute then that means that 
you're going to be consumed by that slutiness and you're not going to reach your goals because sex is a weakness. You could also say that marriage is considered to be a good thing. If Raceland settles down with Chrysania and marries her, he's no longer going to be evil enough to continue with his goals to become ah, an evil yeah. god. Marriage is the end goal. Essentially. Well, it's a dead end. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you've become you've become what society wants you to be. You're the good person uh-huh. with the stable relationship. You're not trying to go into the abyss and overthrow any deities. You're just hanging out and having kids, and that's the good thing. Trying to take over the world is the bad thing. And I suppose I agree with that to a certain extent, but not really. I think it's much right. And if if they were to write this book now, I think it would be much different in terms of that relationship. Different how? I just don't think that there would be, I don't think that marriage and love and ambition would be treated as mutually exclusive. Yeah. Because right now they definitely are. That's why I was like very confused. I'm like, well, you can be married. But again, that's like, you know, your new millennium kind of ideology. It's like, you can have both. It's fine. But maybe back then, or either the thoughts of the people who are working on the book, or maybe just tropes in general of literature and fantasy at the time, it's like, no, it's one or the other because symbolism. So, but I have a question. So what happens to these people who do get married? Like, do do they continue, like, going on adventures? Do they, like, have parts in the, like, other books? Or, or is it, like, that they get married and then they're just, you know, they're married, they have kids, and nothing ever happens to them ever, happily ever after? They vanish into the background, especially the women. Ew. Pre-marriage, right. before they're married... Goldmoon, Lorana, and Tika are off fighting in wars and saving the day and doing all this heroic stuff. After the war is over, they settle down, get married, have kids, and never really go on adventures again. Their husbands do. Oh, of course. Their wives. Ah, of course. Of course, because they have to stay home, mm-hmm. raise the children. They because have stuff kind of go- they yeah. have stuff kind of going on in the background. It's described like Lorana becomes a diplomat and Goldmoon continues to work as a cleric, but ultimately they're stay at they're settled in a way that their husbands aren't. Hmm. This almost reminds me of um Shakespeare's um Taming of the Shrew for some reason. This is like like you can do whatever you want and you can be wild and you can do things and then you know this man comes along and then you know tames them and then you're you know you're stuck inside and done great love that love that as so much as, as soon as you start your own family and prioritize these things especially mothers or women in these domestic roles their life isn't quote-unquote interesting anymore because it's they're just they're being relegated to just being stay-at-home moms with like the obvious like if they're being diplomats and like doing other clericky stuff too that's great but they're also not in the story anymore but the men are like why why i want to read about a diplomat 
I like clerics. Like, I like to read about them still and see, you know, badass women. But again, it doesn't fit into the tropes of the time, most likely. Mm-hmm. Right. So and of course and they would the conventions of the genre. You could you can write a fantasy novel about a married woman who's also a diplomat and goes to visit different courts and is trying to bring peace between all these people and that would be a perfectly good story, but it's not a popular mass market paperback about adventures and sword fighting. Yeah, because fantasy for a very 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 long time and still to this day, honestly, is a very male-dominated market in terms of authors, in terms of people who study it, and in terms of people who consume it. Like, if you're a woman who likes fantasy, you're just like, oh, so you like A Court of Thorns and Roses and Throne of Glass, and you just like the ones with, like, the huge romantic subplot. I get those conversations all the time, and I'm just like, well, yeah, I do like those stuff, but there's nothing wrong with that, but I also like... Brent Weeks and Brandon Sanderson and George R. R. Martin and all these pillars too. There's there's like this whole culture of male dominated fantasy still, and it was even more prominent I think back then because they knew who their audience was. Very similar to how Gary Gygax knew who his audience was when he was helping co-create Dungeons and Dragons. The authors of this book series knew who their readers were, and they knew how to. I don't want to say placate them. They knew how to please them. They knew what kind of stories they would like, and they knew what kind of stories they would not like. They were very aware of your their audience, which is a good trait to have as a writer, but it can be also your downfall when, you know, it's 40 years down the line and society has changed. One more thing I wanted to talk about with regards to Chrysania and Raceland is something that I've noticed, something I noticed particularly when I was doing my research for the episodes that have to deal with them. And I noticed that there is a lot of fan art about the two of them together. And they're very much depicted as this couple in love or this tragic romance. And it got me thinking a little bit about your episode where you talk about art. And I thought it was, it, it's not the same, obviously, with because she's not depicted as this overly sexual person, but... I thought it was interesting how uh, the fandom sees Chrysania and Raceland as this kind of tragic romance that never quite was, but should have been. And that's reflected in the art that people create. And I think that's really interesting because I feel like people are maybe reading those books and imagining their relationship differently. Yeah, I noticed that too when I was like looking for background research and like seeing pictures of the characters so I got a better idea of what they looked like and yeah there's so much fan art of the two of them I just searched Chrysania and like all most of what came up was these depictions of this tragic love story which isn't a bad thing it means that the community really resonated with them but I didn't find that even for like the main love triangle I didn't even like when I searched one of their names I just basically found art of them either well sometimes of the three of them sometimes with one you know, pairing of the love triangle, but mostly I, I was able to find like pictures of just them alone. But it just seems like this kind of very dark, fucked up romance really resonated with people in a way that some didn't. And I thought that was interesting. I think that there's a desire to look at relationships from media and interpret them the way we want them to be. 
Um, I'm thinking specifically of Mina and Dracula from Dracula and then the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, where Dracula and Mina are reimagined as people in love in this sort of tragic romance, because I think that's what people want. A lot of people want there to be a happy ending for these two, and so that happy ending gets portrayed in the art that they create. Yeah, I mean, like... (sighs) I'm just hearing, like, that tragic love story of, like, Romeo and Juliet of, like, like, you won't hear about them one without the other, kind of. That's what I'm hearing that they are. And it sort of just reminds me, again, of, like, Twilight, like, Edward and Bella and kind of the dark and the light and how they are drawn to each other, but they can't be together. Or can they? I don't know. Something about that just resonates with people i guess in terms of a love story i'm gonna throw it out there as harley quinn and the joker also there's a yeah if you look at the relationship between harley quinn and the joker or you look at the relationship between chrysania and raceland in the novels it's very abusive but yeah people interpret that the way they want to interpret it and they create art or they create stories that portray it the way they want it to be. They like the Joker. They like Harley Quinn. They don't like the abuse. So they just write that out of it in their fan fiction or in their art. It's more of the idea of them together, of like these two opposites, than it is about the actual characters themselves, I think. It's more of the idea of like opposites attract, I guess. I think that Raceland appeals... I think Raceland appeals to women who have a certain taste in men. He is not hyper-masculine, he's very intelligent, he's very sensitive, he's sort of misunderstood by a lot of people. Although he's villainous, there are... Although he's villainous, there is that sense that there's something in him that could be redeemed. Ultimately, he is redeemed later in the books, but there's that sense of him, and I think that is... I think a lot of women find that attractive. Maybe that's why there's that impulse to imagine the two of them as having this happy relationship Mm, and overlooking all the bad parts of it yeah right the fact that he just manipulated her and beat her up and left her to die just forget about that it's fine (laughs) he does apologize to her in one of the later novels though so good Obviously, that makes up for the whole 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 part of it. (laughs) They have, (laughs) they do have a moment. I actually thought I did think that was kind of nice. So the the book that I've just described, where all that happens, that's written in like nineteen eighty six, eighty seven, something like that. And then a novel written ten years later is the one where Raceland ultimately apologizes to Chrysania for everything he did to her. And I think that kind of maybe demonstrates a little bit of shift in the attitudes of the authors that Raceland mm-hmm. is able to acknowledge that he did something evil and he's able to apologize for it. What I want to know is what is the time period in the books between him being a douchebag and him apologizing? Because if it's like in the outside world, it's 10 years. Does that like how how is it in the inside world? Like, is it like a year? Is it also 10 years? I want to know. Well, for her, it's 25 years. For Raceland, it's much shorter because he's trapped in the abyss where time doesn't really matter. Ah. Oh, shit. So I don't really have... 25 years later. I don't have a specific answer. For her, it's 25 years. But for Raceland, it's much less. 
Uh, it depends who you think the apology is more for. Is it for him redeeming himself or is it for her and making her, giving her closure, you know? Depends I don't think Rickland is interested in redeeming himself. Okay. Yeah. I think it's genuine. I think that's something I can say with somewhat, with a certain amount of confidence. He apologizes because he genuinely feels remorse, not because he's trying to redeem himself. That's good. Better, again, better than a lot of other... <laughs> A lot of other representations of relationships like that, where either there's no apology or, like, Harley Quinn and the Joker, it's just glorified abuse. Speaking of glorified abuse and never apologizing, I would like to transition <laughs> now to our discussion of Takesis, the Queen of Darkness. So, Please transition. <laughs> Takesis is the supreme evil deity in the entire Dragonlance setting. There's seven gods of good, seven gods of neutrality, and seven gods of evil, and she is the supreme of the evil pantheon. Um, she's described as prideful, she's power-hungry, she's cruel, she's selfish, she's manipulative. Her main priority is always to re-enter the world in her god form and completely rule over the world of Kryn and have everybody be her slaves or her servants. She's kind of a shapeshifter. She takes on a bunch of different forms in the novels depending on who she's dealing with. So when she wants to inspire a sense of dread or a sense of awe in a person, she takes the form of a five-headed dragon. That's a dragon that has the head of all the different chromatic dragons, red, blue, black, white, and red. No, green, sorry. Um, and she's basically the goddess Tiamat from the Forgotten Realms setting, although in Forgotten Realms, Tiamat is the god of evil dragons. In Dragonlance, Tachesis is the god of evil dragons, but she's also the goddess of, of pure evil. She's the Satan figure of the Dragonlance world. Um, and she also appears as a dark warrior, with, who's kind of an androgynous figure. That's the form she takes when she's trying to inspire great warriors and generals to follow her. And she appears as the dark temptress, which is like the most beautiful, sexually seductive woman that you can possibly imagine. And she uses that, specifically she uses that on Raceland to try to get him to turn away from his quest to unseat her. In the first novel, her goal is to take over the entire world by leading these dragon armies. Uh, her favorite general is this general called Ariakas, but ultimately she's unseated. Ultimately, he's unseated by Kidiara, and Kidiara becomes her favorite. Later, she finds a new general who becomes her favorite and creates an entire knighthood dedicated to her. And then in the final trilogy she finds a new disciple a woman called mina who is kind of the like an evil version of joan of arc and mina becomes this disciple of tachesis who tries to conquer the world again in tachesis's name and ultimately tachesis ends up being killed she's stabbed with a dragon lance wielded by an elf prince that's fallen in love with mina and she dies. That's it. There's no more Tachesis. She sounds... I think I was rooting for her basically the entire time as such a great villain until you said that she had the powers of seduction. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, oh, so close. So close. 
It's one of her most important attributes, especially in the second It's how she, it's how, <sighs> when she's trying to, because she knows that Raceland is going to try to defeat her. So she wants to use her sexual power to throw Raceland off his game, basically. He, he's not afraid of her as a dragon. He's not impressed by her as a warrior, this seductress character is kind of the only way that she can get to him. That's his only weakness. Essentially. That's his only weakness is this temptation of the flesh. Mm -hmm. The the manly man tempted by flesh. (laughs) Yes. The, the intelligent, not usually masculine sounding raceland. (laughs) The one that will be the most tempted (laughs) by the flesh, at least of what we know of him. But it just, uh, uh. <laughs> we're uh. why? Well, everything else before that, like quest for power, love that evil deity. That's a woman, love that. Takisa's Tiamat, love that. Why? Uh, why using her seduction? Like why? Why that specifically? Why can't she just be evil and manipulative in other ways, or be super powerful? Because if she has control over fucking dragons think that's enough to get people to be subservient to you in my opinion i think the idea is supposed to be that raceland is such a powerful wizard that even if she threw every dragon she had at him she couldn't get to him is it somewhat influenced by like his relationship with chrysania then because he was so uh, like adverse to having a sexual relationship with her because he thought it would make them both weak does she play on that or is that just is this instance completely separate from the whole Chrysania thing? I think that they're supposed to mirror each other in a certain way. With Chrysania, it's more about she's genuinely in love with Raceland and she wants to be with Raceland as a romantic partner. With Takesis, it's more like she's just trying to fuck with him because she will start out as the Dark Temptress and then they'll start, you know, she'll appear to him in a dream as a as the dark temptress and then they'll start making out or whatever. And then she'll suddenly turn into a dragon or she'll, he'll, she'll turn into his mother. She turns into his mother a couple times too. What? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, why? What? Why? That's one of the ways that she's trying to, it's supposed to be like a psychological torment. So she's, so she's literally the femme fatale trope. Yes, very much. So. She turns you on and then she, Turns on you and tries to kill you or whatever. Yeah, oh. and turns into your mother. And enters into your mother. So Mrs. <laughs> Robinson, but no, but Mrs. Robinson. The evil Mrs. Mrs. Robinson. Evil, evil Mrs. Robinson. This reminds me a lot, weirdly enough, of the Phantom of the Opera. Like the actual, Ooh. Phantom, not, the, not the movie, but like the actual stage production and the book. Because in the book, the Phantom pretends to be Christine's father father yeah which always weirded me out when because you know if if you've seen fan of the opera you know people who are Mm -hmm. fans of it chances are they they want the phantom to win in the end they want him to get christine but as somebody who's read the book been in the stage production seen the stage production why he pretends to be her dad and like manipulate her her entire life but then he tries to seduce her. It's it's kind of like that same weird dichotomy. Like he 
again, again it's it's power. it's not it's not about the actual relationships. It's more about the thought of them. It's it's the Romeo and Juliet thing over again. It's the it's the two contrasting characters and the I don't know the opposition of that. And even though it's really fucked up, you're just gonna overlook that because I want this romance to happen. I don't know, but. But do they? They don't. There's no fan art of Tachesis and th- there's no there's no fan art in the Dragonlance community of this relationship. Is there? Is there? I don't believe so. There's one where it's um, it's Raceland chained to a wall in the abyss, and Chrysania or sorry, Tachesis is hovering over him, dressed in her her 1980s biker babe heavy metal fantasy. <laughs> what you, uh-huh. you guys had a word for it in your in your episode? What was it? For those metal bikini bikinis. armor, bikini armor—that's what it is. So it's mm-hmm. it's the Queen of Darkness in her bikini armor, taunting mm, as you do, taunting Raceland as he's chained to a wall. <laughs> it's weird it because relationship. It's... <laughs> well, yeah, because the roles are reversed, right? Instead of Raceland manipulating Chrysania, it's now Raceland being the one manipulated by a woman. So obviously, so you're off put by it. So people are off put by that when the woman uses her sexuality to get what she wants. I'm, I'm, you know, forgetting the whole mom thing because that's a whole other fucking can of worms. Because <laughs> I'm guessing Raceland has mommy issues now. He does. He did. Yeah. Okay. He does. And he did. <laughs> Great. Yeah. 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 So you know, for, at least for the sexual part of this, appealing to his sexuality, like when the woman, this evil creature, has the upper hand over the man the male character it's not romanticized in that way but when it's kind of reversed and raceland not quite evil but still morally gray is starting to have like manipulate uh chrysania and have the upper hand that's more romanticized and people so are pushed are, their own things on that are we saying when the man is the innocent party and is being seduced by the evil woman that's not okay but when it's the other way around we root for it Yes. I wouldn't call Rick innocent. <laughs> Not innocent, well, but yeah. like being the one that isn't that doesn't have the complete power, I think. Yeah. Is like when the power is is given to the woman in the situation, people are not turned on by that. But when the man has the power in that situation, you know, clothes on the floor, titties out, like, let's go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm Which, a little turned on by Takesis and her bikini. <laughs> I mean, that explains so much about, like, Fifty Shades of Grey and whatever. Oh, my God, it does, doesn't it? I think it's just, like, trends in, you know, what society deems is... It's a little bit iffy, but, like, it's the okay kind of iffy when the man has the power over the woman. But, man, now I just want to see more depictions of, like, people like Takesis having power over characters in books and movies and then seeing... I wonder how that kind of dynamic, if it was more popular today, would would jive. Do you think there would be more fan art? Maybe, maybe not. I don't. We're still pretty patriarchal. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Know. There is a certain amount of patriarchy in the Dragonlance pantheon of deities. One of the ways that I kind of look at Tachesis is so. There's the three supreme gods. There's Paladine is the supreme god of good. There's Tachesis is the supreme god of evil, and then there's a supreme god of neutrality called Gillian. 
and Gillian is obviously supposed to be neutral. He's supposed to balance Paladine and Tachesis, but whenever Tachesis tries to take over the world, Gillian always jumps on the side of Paladine. So whenever evil is trying to take over the world, the good guys and the neutral guys team up to stop her. And to me, that feels very patriarchal. You've got, you know, the strong woman trying to assert herself, trying to mm. take control of her destiny, and these two men team up to stop her every time. Because you can't let the woman have too much power. Right. It's super interesting because I think you can study this in so many different ways and you can look at this in so many different ways. In some ways, I fucking love that the god goddess of darkness is a woman. Mm. I love that because Absolutely. it goes... It- it goes mm-hmm. against women gods as pure figures, as being the mm-hmm. angelic, mm-hmm. you know, in charge of music and in charge of purity and fertility. Chastity. Fertility, exactly. It, it, it takes away that and it puts her in another role. And I love that. But then you have situations like you just described when she has too much power and it's two men asserting themselves against a woman who has too much power so she can't win either way like you want you want her to die because she's obviously the the supreme you know goddess of evil but because she's a woman it also symbolizes just because she has that gender assigned to her don't give a woman too much power take away her power exactly it symbolizes that well since you've mentioned taking away takesis's power Let's talk about how Takesis dies. Yes. There is, I won't go into too much backstory, but basically Takesis pulls a trick on all the other gods and she uses her magic to take the planet Kryn from where it is in the universe and put it somebody else, put it somewhere else. And the other gods can't find it. So Takesis is the only one there. And so she becomes, this is sort of her master stroke. She is now the only god for all of Kryn, and they start calling her the One God. And she's, and, and as the One God, she is gender neutral. She's not male or female. But she's just this supreme deity, and she recruits her disciple Mina, who, like I said, is like the, the Joan of Arc figure. Joan and the, well, Joan of Arc herself and Mina are both also kind of, they're intended to be androgynous figures, I suppose. Uh, Mina has wears armor. She's got her head shaved, her hair buzzed short. Um, but what happens is eventually the, the gods figure out what happened. And the god Paladine gives up his immortality in order to make Tachesis mortal as well. And at that moment... Tachesis is stabbed with a dragon lance and she dies. And there's no more Tachesis. And that's what they did. The men literally took her power away. Paladine had to give up his power, but he didn't die. He's still, he's just mortal now. But yeah, they literally took her power away. It was the only way that they could stop her from succeeding in this plan. That's not even a metaphor. That's just flat out like right in front of your face. <laughs> and and even the fact that like he had to give up his power as this like big self-sacrifice of like how men have to self-sacrifice themselves to like to take away the woman's power. That's just so in your face. I hate it. 
is very in your face. She deserved better. <laughs> she deserved a better death than that. I want to talk about the dragon lance itself as a phallic symbol, because I didn't think about this until I was writing, until I was putting all my notes together for us to talk about this. But I realized that in the entire dragon lance series, Takesis is wounded twice, once when she's in dragon form and then when she dies in mortal human form at the end. And both times it's with a dragon lance wielded by a man. And yeah, they just, she gets stabbed with a dragon lance, the ultimate phallic symbol. Fucking damn it. (laughs) You're so, you're so right though. Like that's such a good observation. I didn't even think about that. Like a lance is, is just in itself a phallic symbol. And the fact that it's wielded Mm. by a man just reinforces that. So of course she would only die if a penis was jabbed in her. Of course. (laughs) Obviously. Obviously in order to tame the shrew, you gotta gotta put a phallic lance through her stomach, heart, whatever. It's it's just it's so much more blatantly patriarchal, weirdly, like that whole exchange and her whole existence, even more so than the other characters that we've talked about, because there's a even though it is kind of obvious with our lens and how we're looking at it, there's still like a certain subtlety to it because it was conforming to how uh, society was at the time. But Mm. in this case with these powerful beings who probably aren't as fleshed out as these other characters i would assume because usually gods are not unless the whole series revolves around like they're being gods so mm. when it's all watered down these big battles and stuff they just don't even have time to make it symbolic or a metaphor they're just like nah it's just stab her with a dick i do like what you said earlier though about how Takisa seems very Takesis is cool because she's the supreme evil and because she's female as a female reader you definitely feel drawn to her um even though she's empowering yeah even though she's doing evil things she's powerful Mm. she doesn't let nobody tells her what to do she's the one in charge and i think that's very attractive to a female reader even if she's the villain and Mm -hmm. there's certain there's certain ideas within there's certain ideas around Takesis that I think she doesn't seem to have this sense of caring about male or female. She's worshipped by both men and women. She's got these supreme, powerful clerics who are completely dedicated to her. She has an entire order of knights who are all, not all male, but mostly male, that are dedicated to her and see her as their, like, patron deity she doesn't play favorites she's got she has some of her favorites who are men and she has some of her favorites who are women takesis herself doesn't seem to buy into those gender stereotypes or care about gender roles Now, now that we've talked about everything that I can think of, at least for these mm-hmm. early Dragonlance novels, how would you feel that this holds up, doesn't hold up? What do you, what do you, what is your sense as a modern person who, ne- who didn't necessarily mm-hmm. grow up with these novels? Of the books? What are our just, opinions just, on the books? Just the characters that we've talked about. I think that. There's a couple, I think that they still hold up as fantasy novels, mostly because they're very of their time. 
And if you just look past that, I mean, I can't really speak because usually like I'm a writer. I come from a writing background. I grew up with fantasy just in general, but haven't had the chance to read these novels quite yet. I usually hold, is the story any good above all else? And if the story holds up, then you can kind of forgive some of these things, not necessarily like excuse them, but just know that they are products of their time. And I also just think it's super interesting that all of these women characters that I feel like we talk more about and that we that hold up are either morally gray or evil. Because I don't know if that's like, a, if that's telling of the how much society has changed. But it seems like all of these, at least for Takesis and for Kitiara, women who are in charge of their sexuality, who had power, knew how to use it, are just kind of early feminist icons. Not necessarily because they were morally good, but because they held power, they had men and women who are subservient to them in a time in fantasy and just in general when women didn't really have a whole lot of power in terms of society when, you know, compared to men. And I think it's interesting because I don't think they were intentionally written that way. I think probably they were written that way as a way to make readers of the time not like them because, you know, embracing your more masculine traits and embracing your sexuality and being morally gray as a woman wasn't seen as a good thing. And they wanted probably people to root more for people like Tika and Chrysania because they were, or even Lorana because they were more morally good, but they don't hold up as characters as well as the others because I think at the time they thought all of these characteristics were bad and the readers would think they were bad. But now, you know, 40 years on, we're looking like, yeah, feminist icon, we sleep love. <laughs> it's great. In terms of them holding up, it would depend on me for the story personally. But I think weirdly enough, some of the evil characters that we've talked about are the morally gray ones hold up more, but not intentionally, which is interesting. I fully agree with what Chardé was saying that it, it's almost as if um we as people born in this time and especially like like feminists born in this time we and as millennials like you you look for in characters that you want to like or that you like you look for certain characteristics that are like not typical kind of goody two shoes mary jane you want somebody something with more depth and you like I, and you want like a gray character because you don't want to find that you know fairy tale princess who you know is there for being a love interest so you want like a, a character who empowers you so it's unfortunately in that time those would be the evil or kind of neutral kind of characters but it's it's just interesting how times have changed and now because we know what like a typical love story princess is going to look like, we don't want that anymore. And now we want these evil characters, I guess. I think that one thing that's interesting when you talk about how the evil characters and the morally gray characters are the ones that continue to resonate 40 years later. And and we I mentioned about them feeling more modern. It's true even within the books themselves. 
We've got Gold Moon, who plays an important role in one book and then kind of disappears. We've got Tika and Lorana. They play important roles in two books and then they disappear. Cristania is important for a whole trilogy and then she disappears. Kitiara and the Queen of Darkness keep coming back over and over and over and over again. I think that there's those kind of characters just have so much more life to them that you can keep using them as characters in your stories over and over again in a way that you can't, partially because Kitiara and Takesis don't settle down and get married, but they have that staying power that the the good girls just don't have. It's like the authors had an idea for a story to play out with these good girl characters that played out, and then after that, there was nothing for them to do. But the characters that have more depth are more interesting, and so they keep returning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess that's all I have to talk about. I think that Dragonlance, in terms of the gender roles, despite all these issues that we've been pointing out, I think they do a good job of making strong female characters. Maybe they're not strong female characters the way that they would be written now, but I think for their time, they did the best that they could within the conventions that they were working with. Yeah. So I guess we'll just have to be satisfied with that. Or at least I will just (laughs) have to be satisfied with that. I'll probably read the books eventually. Doing all this research and talking about it has made me very interested into just seeing how the overall story unfolds with these very interesting characters around it. Well, if you're interested in learning more about the Dungeons & Dragons novel series, listen to D&D Book Club, available (laughs) on your favorite platform. Yeah. Self-plug, (laughs) self-plug. That's pretty much what my show is, just reading the books for you. I'm not actually reading them, but yeah. I'm just telling the story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you don't want to take all the time to read the books, you just listen to my podcast. Perfect. <laughs> um, so why don't you plug yourselves? Tell us where people listening can find you. Uh, where can you find us? Um, everywhere? Sure thing. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on, we are the Slovenly Trolls. You can find us streaming on Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, Google, Apple Podcasts, uh, <laughs> Amazon Podcasts. Yeah, any podcast streaming site. We also have a Twitter and an Instagram. We're pretty active on there. If you want to get in touch, just say hi, recommend episodes, get the latest hot goss uh see our shit posting any any and all <laughs> just say hi we're every platform we're at slovenly trolls so we're pretty easy to find if you know how to spell if you know which i don't oh i highly recommend their please it's really fantastic if you're somebody that wants to look at dungeons and dragons with a more critical eye there's a million podcasts that are actual plays and uh, people talking about the lore and that's all really fun and talking about the game and that's really fun but if you really want to take a peek behind the curtain slovenly trolls is an excellent podcast to listen to thank you for being on my show and i will see you again in a few weeks when i'm on your show yeah look forward to that we look forward to it thanks bye bye bye
So that wraps up my conversation with Charday and Lissa, the Slovenly Trolls. If you enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend you follow their podcast, The Slovenly Trolls, wherever podcasts are found. And you can follow them on social media at The Slovenly Trolls on Instagram and Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram at DND Book Club. That's D A N D D Book Club. Or on Twitter at Miss Megan J. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash DND Book Club to become a patron for only $5 a month. There will be a link in the show notes. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, we're all a little big, bad, and evil now and again, and that's the way it should be.